0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: I'm surrounded by authors
2: and publicists and everything. It's a busy day so we better get started. Jan, many people lead lives of quiet desperation. And this is evident in Rachel Matthews' novel, Sirens. So, Rachel, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much. This novel begins with the rape of 16-year-old Geordie Spence. Now, the circumstances leading to that moment are very revealing. And if I can just read a bit of an example of uh, Jody's mindset... Jo- uh, Jody. Geordie, I've got to get that right Geordie, I've written it here Geordie limped through the streets a blister stinging from fake Prada high heels She'd bought the shoes the day before at a discount place in the mall She felt tall in them and although they were vinyl and the black plastic surface was starting to crack when she looked in the mirror at her long legs she was a contestant on Australia's next top model What sort of forces are compelling Geordie?
3: Geordie represents, I think, uh, a lot of young women who are wanting to feel um, part of something, something bigger, uh, and I think are very influenced by that Kardashian world and that Facebook world, social media world of, of you know how they should be, how they should look, and Geordie lives in poverty in in housing commission, and and she wants to have a night away from that where she can feel special.
2: But all of her uh, images of what makes you special are basically arbitrary and
3: artificial in many ways. They are, they are, but they are... um, I think they are so entrenched now in the daily media and in conversation and in really in ideals, um, especially for young people. And for her, that um, it's a way of really reaching something that's out of her everyday life.
2: Yeah, something to aspire to, but it's unreachable in many ways. Mm. But you've already sort of started to suggest something here where you talk about living in poverty because you go into Geordie's background, her family, Mm. because um, you've got uh, her... Parents, Mm. uh, Petra, mother Petra, and father Cain. So you start developing that um, sort of generational uh, perspective Mm. and despite the genuineness of Petra and Cain's initial relationship when Mm. they began as young people, Mm. their relationship's falling apart.
3: Mm.
2: And the forces that have influenced that,
3: I think um, I'm really interested as a writer in exploring um, the labels and the, um, the impact of stereotypes, um, especially for people who don't often have a voice, and particularly in fiction, I think often don't have a voice. And to me, the characters in this story um, have a lot more to them than what we, we, we have presented to us in the media in the current affair kind of programs. Those narrow ideas that impoverished people are uneducated, they have nothing to contribute. And as we know, that, you know, people are a lot more laid and complex than that.
2: Well they've got talents and skills that are never fully realised.
3: That's right. And for a lot of them that, that that's kind of a pain and a grief that, that they have to carry with them.
2: But um Cain is a way trying to find work, he's struggling to provide four or five kids, um, Petra is seeing someone called Boss and brings a bucket of KFC home to feed the children after a night out with Boss. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's got a sense of patheticness uh, in yeah. the truest sense of the word about
3: it. Well, I mean, she Petra, I mean, she does the best that she can with what she knows, and that's mm. all she knows. And And Petra, again, is like one of those people who is very typecast and stereotyped, in current affair, kind of, um, you know, journalism, and Petra really loves her children, mm. and you know, she's 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 doing the best she can. But
2: there are reasons for their behaviour. In many ways, I mean, Cain uh, was beaten by his father, yeah. who was um, now was he the war?
3: Yeah, Viet- Vietnam
2: vet. Vietnam vet, yeah. etc. So there's a build-up of circumstances or events which are indirectly influencing the event that starts the novel in many ways. It's it's compounding. Mm. So you've got this multi-generational look at a problem in society, Mm. uh, giving it more than just the um, Mm -hmm. victim-perpetrator perspective to it. You've also then got another layer here. You've got other characters. You've got uh, Max and mm-hmm. Ruby, now Max was present at the time the rape was committed, but it was committed by an associate. I don't think they're friends anymore, Dirk. Mm-hmm. But Max is challenged as well.
3: Yeah. The yeah.
2: forces working on him?
3: Well, again, I mean, there you have another kind of label of a footballer and, um, and the world that he struggles with is, is that kind of media world and all the expectations of... What he is meant to be. He's,
2: he's at the end of his career. He is. And he's going to be on the scrap
3: heap. Yeah. He's a product. He is. And he's also uh, a country guy who um, who struggles with, um, you know, looking for an authentic kind of life and connection. Hmm.
2: And, well, speaking of connection, there's another uh, character here, Ruby. There's a potential for a connection there, ironically. Ruby works for a dating agency.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she does. But she can't find love. No. And, uh, you know, Ruby uh, also represents a stereotype of a a very educated woman who doesn't have children, who um, in many ways, you know, has has built her career but is still feeling that that social pressure and expectation um, to be something that she's not. And a lot of the characters don't feel that they are what they should be or what society says they should be.
2: And in many ways, the potential is on the doorstep. I mean, um, Ruby and Max are neighbours. They're both Mm. looking for a connection. And yet because of assumptions, misinterpretations, Mm. they are... Are prevented in many ways from mm. realizing that mm. potential.
3: Yeah, and I also, because I wanted to explore that kind of that battle and that tension where, you know, relationships um, kind of begin and then they can't always uh, continue because the, the people involved uh, aren't really, um, you know, finding what they really want kind of separate to that relationship and then it all becomes quite entangled.
2: And, yeah, un- unachievable in many ways. Mm. Um, now, you you have made reference to a current affair uh, on several occasions in the interview so far. There are suggestions being made then about the nature of our society and its mm-hmm. priorities. I mean, Shiloh, who's one of Geordie's best friends, uh, suggests a form of justice. Well, you know, tell current affair, I reckon they'd pay you. Mm. And it's as if uh, mm. the advice she's getting is, is again... Um, facile and, and mm. lacking in substance, and and but this is seen as a viable mm. form of
3: justice. What's going on? Yeah, well, I think I think it kind of represents um, perhaps uh, you know from a young person's perspective what you know what what is viewed as um, you know fairness or how how do we actually balance these things out and who who can we actually turn to? And it's the media, you know, because they are in that media world.
2: It's the most prolific
3: force. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you may, you might get cash from it.
2: Yeah, As and if that's th- not
3: a judgment. I mean, that, that some of these young people are living with nothing.
2: Indeed, and we already have examples in society of that taking yeah. place. I mean, not just off air. We were talking about the St Kilda um, girl or the St Kilda football school girl. girl, school girl, yeah, yeah. Um, nameless. Um, sort of thing. Mm. Um, So she's become a product or an Mm. image rather than a person... That's right. ...in her own right Mm. because of that. A
3: construction.
2: Yes. Um, But what you've then done, I mean, there is a realism to the way you've handled Geordie's response to the rape. And I don't Mm. know how much you want to talk about this in terms of I think it's something for the reader to Mm. explore but it's not sensationalised or maudlin, Um, there would have been challenges in working out that development.
3: That was probably the most difficult part of writing the novel and um, because the novel was part of a PhD where I was looking at sexual violence in Australian football, uh, I'd done a lot of reading about, you know, how we write about sexual assault and... um, I had to make a lot of decisions about, um, you know, how I make how do how do you make that believable? But there are arguments from, you know, uh, feminist um, critics who say that sometimes, you know, are you actually uh, creating a space where it's voyeuristic and you kind of bring too much attention? So it's it's a difficult um, balance. But my my intention was to to clearly demonstrate that Geordie was. F- uh, physically, a much weaker than the perpetrator, and that she had clearly indicated no.
2: Mm. But you've also indicated that the forces working on her yeah. are more than just that act of violation. Um, mm. There are because the the perpetrator has a sense of entitlement because of the social milieu he is in yep. that social milieu is part of uh, a generational development mm. it's part of the media profile so there's that whole construct behind it that you've put in place
3: mm. that's right and and i think i also wanted to make a comment about men who are silenced in that space as well because there are many who are unable to speak up
2: well max since- is trying to talk about it,
3: mm.
2: and yet there's that scene with the psychologist. Mm. Um, he
3: almost gets
2: to the point. Your time's up, and and he, mm. you know, he's got mm. an opportunity with Ruby to talk about it, but he can't, or circumstances intervene.
3: Yeah, he doesn't have the dialogue.
2: Mm. So there's the all of those challenges behind
3: mm.
2: um, the rape. So there's more than one victim, if I can put it that way. I don't want to belittle what Geordie's been through, but, Mm. um, yeah, there are multiple victims Mm. in this story in in that regard.
3: Yeah, the word victim is really interesting too because um, I see Geordie not as a victim in that uh, she has... There's hope in terms of her artistic talents and her, um, her survival... She's a strong young woman. She cares for her younger brothers and sisters when her mother's not there. There She has a lot of responsibility. And these are the things that we don't see in the media.
2: There is hope that comes out at the end with Geordie, but Mm. there's also then still the spectre of uh, assumptions and mistakes. I'll let the the reader discover that for themselves with what could take place. Uh, Last but not least, then Florence... Yes, a homeless woman, yes. powerless yet powerful in many ways. Uh, she bring well, not bring. She's a focal point for Ruby and Max doing good in the world.
3: She is, and um, she she's pretty much. I, I think she's the Greek chorus, and she and she sees everything, and she reminds us of you know um, what everyone really wants, and that is to to be connected.
2: The book is Siren, author Rachel Matthews. It is uh, a transit lounge release and well worth reading. Jan.
1: Well, uh, welcome back, Rachel Matthews, and welcome back to my guest today, Anna George. It's lovely to have authors come back. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me again. Uh, uh, Last time, Anna George wrote a psychological thriller. It was a debut novel and it was called What Came Before. It was a fantastic read and the Lone Child is also another good read. The book is about mother-child relationships, how that's built and what happens when it's broken. And I'd like Anna to read the very first paragraph of The Lone Child. OK, here we go.
0: Nieves pretended she didn't know the baby strapped to her chest. He was still crying his thin, newly alive cry. She tried to focus on the metronomic wash of the sea and the pungent blankets of seagrass underfoot. The colours, rust charcoal and mossy green, but the baby's cries, caught on a wind, circled her head, obliterating everything. She stopped, puffing. Damn her widowhood.
1: So, do you think nivs enjoying her new motherhood <laughs> no she's definitely not
0: <laughs> and as she's alluding to there she's finding herself a single mum with a newborn she was left when uh, she was eight months pregnant so she's not in a place she
1: expected to be in very quickly and not enjoying it quote from the book she didn't have the perfect equilateral triangle of love that she'd hoped for she stayed at her bay. she stared at her baby in his crib, tried to feel something other than responsibility and fear, exhausted and vaguely trapped. Now she had what you'd call a, a freshly shelved career.
0: What was it? Yeah, she was an architect. Well she is an architect, and she's a very successful architect, sort of the top end of town. She builds spectacular houses and she's staying in one when the story um, takes place, which is on the coast at Flinders, looking out over the sea. Uh, so that's that's her passion and her dream, and she expected to be able to incorporate her motherhood yes. into that with
1: the help mm. of a very uh, participating partner. So it's Thursday. It's the Thursday before Easter. It's cold, and she's walking the Flinders Beach with her new baby harnessed to her. Who else is on the beach? There's a little child
0: on the beach. There's nobody else but some birds and this little child, and she sees this little girl playing amongst the rock pools and wonders... Who's responsible for her? Where is her keeper? Where is her mum? Where's her dad? Who's out there? And then as she waits and watches, she realises nobody's there. Nobody's coming.
1: Nobody's there. And she remembers this speech very clearly because this is where she lost her own mother. Yeah, this is the scene of the a big loss in her life when her mother went for a swim. And this, well, with the sleeplessness, she has these uh, memories of a mother coming back. And uh, we sort of start to wonder whether she's actually rational.
0: Mm. Well, she's sleep deprived. Um, I wouldn't want to say all new mothers are irrational but um, <laughs> sleep deprivation is a pretty fundamental um, problem for
1: your thinking. So she's very foggy. So from here we go into a slit narrative. To the young girl's mother, Leah Chalmers... Why wasn't she looking after Taylor? Well, she's got her own concerns, so that um, unfolds
0: in the book. Uh, She's struggling. She's got two little girls of her own, and she's an aged care worker. She comes from a very different walk of life to Neve, and she's grappling uh, with her situation where she's been derailed, which she didn't expect to be. She's struggling to make ends meet.
1: Ah yes, well she'd lost her own mother too, didn't she? Yeah, she's she? also
0: lost her own mother and been raised by her grandmother, who's but also in a
1: different away. way to the way Neve lost her mother.
0: Yeah, that's right, that's right. Her mother disappeared. Her mother, well, she left. Her mother, Neve's mother, disappeared literally.
1: Her husband Mitch lost his job, and another quote: "How quickly his shame would spread from him to them, and how much damage it could do." Mm. Mm. So everything got derailed then. So how could Leah possibly lose her children? Well, would you believe it's
0: not that difficult to lose your children every so often? (laughs) I think there'll be few parents out there who haven't um, turned and thought their child was behind them in a shopping centre or at the beach or at a picnic ground and realise they're not there and have that terrible moment for a couple of seconds or maybe a few minutes and then... Hopefully, usually, you find your child. But this little kid, this little child's
1: been a bit of an escapist. Yes, she does. She does go for the odd dash. And where was she found last time and brought back by the police? Yeah, she
0: was sitting in the middle mm. of Nepean Highway and down on the Mornington Peninsula
1: <laughs> <laughs> playing with the flowers. So there's a possibility that um, Leah may lose her, her kids to child protection. Well, that's her fear. That's mm. her fear. Now, back to Neve. There's an accident which causes a hole in her fence on this beautiful property. Why is she wants it reported and she wants it fixed as soon as possible? Why? Well, Neve's a very private person
0: who lives behind high fences and spectacular homes, like I said, and she doesn't want to be vulnerable to the world. So, this big gaping hole in her stone fence um, is something that's important for her to be fixed quickly.
1: Mm. So, Neve calls the local policeman who would like to come in and take the visit a bit longer, but Neve won't let him anywhere close into the inside of the house. He advises her to hire a tradesman from out of town. Mm. Mm. Look, the
0: book's about judgment, it's about class and judgment and parenting, and there's judgment around Neve. She's got this wealth um, which her family's made her father's gone bankrupt a few times and he's left the country and there are family trusts that are enabling the wealth to remain in the family and he left the local community with lots of debt and that's just a tiny little thread at the back of underlying mm-hmm. the book but I wanted the book to be about judgment top and bottom you know Leah feels judged and Eve judges Leah Leah and Leah's husband have views around rich people so i just wanted to explore all of that and try and um and also for Neve not to have a lot of self awareness around um her personal responsibility or response to the fact that she's got this wealth that's not exactly ill-gotten but perhaps not really rightfully hers either
1: well in contrast to that there's a the stonemason who's called what do we know about sel Sal is a lovely man and I wanted to write a lovely man after writing a not very
0: lovely man last time in What Came Before. Uh. Uh, and Sal is also motherless. His mother's died in the month before the book begins. Uh, so I've got three key adults here without mothers. And Sal is grieving for his mother and there's this thread around life after death in the book. Uh, and, and hallucinations. And Sal feels his mother around him and is really hopeful that she might just turn up and say something to him, um, pass on a message because she believed in life after death. And, and he's hopeful that that may happen, even though he wonders if that's,
1: you know, yeah. sane. Well, Neve invites him into the house, mm-hmm. and perhaps this is unwise. Mm-hmm. Well, she insists that he comes back and finishes that fence. And it's kind of, it's Easter holidays, but he, he agrees to it. Now through circumstance, Neve ends up with this little little girl. It's bath time for the baby. Now the baby is always crying. but when Neve goes to bath the baby, this little girl also gets into the bath and it's here Neve sees the marks on the little girl's body, maltreated, assaulted and neglected. Now, this little girl didn't even know the name of a piece of fruit, and it was a banana. So, well, let's hear a little bit more from um, about this little girl and, and from page 85. Okay. Let's just put my glasses on so I can <laughs> see what I'm reading.
0: So, Neve, right, she would keep the girl for a few hours. If the mother was foolish enough to lose her daughter for a second time, she could go without her a little longer. In fact, this scare might teach the woman a lesson that yesterday's didn't. And if the mother didn't return by dinner time, well then, Neve would call the police, without question. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, she would try to inflate the girl, boy her. For this child, if only for a very short time, Neve would be like the mother she'd lost and the girl would be perfectly
1: safe. So this is all leading up to Friday night. And then Friday night in Flinders, there's this incredible storm. The electricity goes out. There's isolation and fear. And as you would know, all her underwear disappears from the clothesline. <laughs> I tell you, this is just fraught. You know, it's just fraught. And then we wake up to this beautiful, sunny Saturday, Easter Saturday. And so Neve decides to take the pram and the, the little child down to the shopping centre, but she feels this whole idea of this um, social judgment upon her. Mm. Yeah, she's conscious of how the
0: child looks in the, the clothes that the girl's wearing and her scruffy way. She doesn't have any shoes on, she's wearing socks. And Neve is conscious of how the child's being perceived and how she's being
1: perceived in relation to the child. Mm. Neve wants to teach this child a particular lesson in disillusionment. Disillusionment that our mothers will inevitably disappoint us, fail us by leaving, by dying, by staying exactly the same. Oh, I don't <laughs> think
0: she wants to teach her that. She doesn't want to teach her that. I think there's a moment when she considers um, when the child thinks her mother might be outside looking for her and, and it was mm. Sal. And she doesn't want to let her know that she's definitely not coming back at all. So she doesn't want to teach her that lesson, but it's a lesson of the book, you know. Yes, a lesson
1: of the book. Yes, a a of the book. But, and when we see Neve making irrational choices by trying to flushing uh, flush down the toilet all the uh, named and addressed envelopes, and. Uh and we wonder about other ways that a mother could lose a child. A clinical psychologist may see that a mother is insane and take the baby away. Mm, and we do have a clinical psychologist in it. And possibly, now this this is what I saw, but um, Anna George, the author of The Lone Child, didn't. I was thinking maybe Neve is doing a, sur- a, sur- a surrogate pregnancy. <laughs> And she's run away before she could give up the child. Look, this is terrible. This is how you get all of these terrible thoughts going through your <coughs> mind reading one of Nana George's. Scary books, (laughs) (laughs) and you also write about Australia having a long tradition of losing children.
0: Mm, I just (coughs) wanted to touch on that. Really, again, when Neve's trying to work out where this child's come from and who she belongs to, from our art to our movies to our books to our history, our Indigenous history, obviously, Um, (laughs) we have
1: we have that history. Yeah, whether their kids have been stolen or abducted or lost in the bush, Mm. as you say. Um I like this whole idea of uh Taylor's imaginary toys being the African wild dogs. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think um when
0: you're creating children you have to make sure they're fully fully fleshed out. Sometimes children in novels can be just trotted off to the side and obviously um this child has her own interests and passions and she loves Animals, she loves African wild dogs. If my son Lockie's listening, Lockie loves African wild dogs. So <laughs> ah, thank you, Lockie, for that. I thought it
1: was sort of something out there that might have been brought yeah, in from real life. Yeah,
0: it was one of those bizarre things. I don't know how we discovered African wild dogs, but he did, and I thought that's great. because was there, sort of rare and, you know, <laughs> Research you didn't extinct. have to
1: do. No, not really, <laughs> a little bit. I've got up. a
0: few animal facts in there for um, the little girl to come up yeah. with.
1: Well, really... Um Anna George's book, The Lone Child, is about the challenges and pressures on mothers and the social judgment it of, is. in our time too.
0: But it's also about um, the preciousness of children and the human need to connect. So it's ultimately a hopeful story, I think.
1: Oh, yes. I was really pleased at the end. <laughs> Everything worked out and all those noises out in the bush and the wind and oh, it was all put in for suspense.
2: Connection seems to be the theme running through both of These novels, absolutely, today. and absolutely. the need yeah. for it um, yeah. in all ways, shapes, manners, and forms. I was also reminded of um, lost children. Have you ever heard the story about young Albert Ramsbottom who got caught in lion's den on a trip to zoo, and his, <laughs> and his parents wanted to. So, an old famous English uh, poem about a, a child oh. that gets lost at the zoo, gets eaten by the lion. Um, parents claim the insurance, but then the lion coughs him up, and they, oh, I have to pay back the insurance. Here's a stick, go and pork the leopard. Um, anyways, <laughs> thank, I, thank I have digressed. Thank you very much for
1: that completely inane insight. Thanks thank Dave. you. <laughs> I'm
2: just trying to connect. It's all.
1: Well, I was speaking with Anna George about her book, The Lone Child by Penguin.
2: And I was talking to Rachel Matthews about Siren, which is from Transit Lounge. See you all next week. Thank you. Week.